And we're back on Fictional Frontiers. I'm your host, Sohei Bawad. Each week here on Fictional Frontiers, we cover the quote-unquote most timely of pop culture entertainment, whether it's film, television, video games, you name it. The best, some people call it. And we'll bring James on next week. James Barnelli, the founder of RealViews.net, the best online film critic in America. Our wires got crossed and we couldn't connect, so I'm going to go solo talking about a film that is a team-centric film, I guess you could say, even though the lead characters say they're not a team. I'm obviously talking about the Marvels, and I just got a whiff of the numbers for opening weekend. They're not good for this film. I'm going to talk about the film itself, what I thought about it. I'm going to talk about the reasons, perhaps, behind the failure of this film, because the numbers are going to show you that excuse me, I'm dealing with a cold here, that the film itself is not, let's just say, the crown jewel of the MCU. It's actually, uh, I think, clear definitive proof that the MCU and the superior genre, to some degree, there needs to be some major, major work done. Not only from a quality and content perspective, but also from a marketing and public perception perspective. So to start with, I'm going to read this piece from Anthony uh, D'Alessandro in Deadline or on the Deadline site, Deadline.com. This just came out literally about 30 minutes ago. We're recording on Sunday morning. The Marvel's Meltdown. Disney MCU post lowest box office opening ever at 47 million. What went wrong? Sunday update. And I'll read a little bit about this or what he wrote because I think it's important and then we'll dive right in. The last minute push for the Marvels with an appearance by Brie Larson on Friday's The Tonight Show and a theater in New York City post actor strike have not moved weekend grosses any higher for Marvel Studios, The Marvels. The film is posting a week a weekend at the bottom of yesterday's estimate with $47 million, the lowest ever for Disney's Marvel Cinematic Universe. Don't blame the running time as the Marvel's clocks in at 97 minutes versus other MCU picks, which have run times of over two and a half hours. The Marvel's Saturday was $15.3 million, and Nancy... I guess the analyst here who looks at global numbers says that she will have an update soon, but it's current, it's presently at 110 million, which is also a bottom rung for the MCU and below the 140 million they were forecasting or we were forecasting. In regards to the U.S. admissions, the Marvels came in at per ant intelligence at 3.3 million compared to other superhero bombs, flashes 5.5 million and Eternals 3.9 million. Now, if you're regular listener to Fictional Frontiers, you know what we thought about with respect to those two films. The Eternals is the nadir, in my opinion, of the MCU. Or one of the, at the time it was the nadir. There have been some pretty awful efforts from Marvel Studios. I put She-Hulk in the mix as well. The Flash, Flash Saving Babies, that's all I have to say. If you've seen it on HBO Max, you know what I'm talking about. But it did much worse than both those films. The Marvels gets one of several <clears throat> gets one of several post-pandemic B cinema scores from audiences after Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness 
B+, Thor Love and Thunders B+, Eternals B, and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania's B. By all accounts and by all sources, it's a disastrous result for a $200 million Marvel Studios movie. The Marvel's misfire is about the rusting of a platinum brand that's in need of some serious, not polishing, rather resurfacing. Months ago, who would have thought that Universal Blumhouse's Five Nights at Freddy's two weeks ago in a day and date debut on Peacock would post a higher opening at the box office, 80 million, it's actually almost double, than the Marvel's. It's interesting to put the two pieces of IP side by side because it says something about Universal and Disney's ability to harness fans around an event. As we mentioned earlier, there's a maelstrom of reasons why the Marvels didn't work. Many would be quick to point to quote-unquote superhero fatigue and that the great comic book movies of the millennium are now seeing their grand demise, just like the big Hollywood musicals of the 1960s. <clears throat> now, before I actually get into the film, again, my apologies for the cough-related or cold-related cough and sniffles. I will before I get into my take on the film, I want to address a couple of points he makes here. The B cinema score is absolutely disastrous because you have to remember the cinema scores are taken in the opening weekend and they usually skew higher because you have excited invested fans who are coming out of the theater and they want to give positive reviews because they want to support the project or in their minds they rationalize how good the project is and they're going to give it a higher score than what it really deserves and so if you get a b that means that even they were not happy with this at all so that is not a good sign for the weeks moving ahead okay now the fact that five nights at freddy's two weeks ago made over 80 million dollars i think is a testament to that ip and that's the problem is that if you don't get your fan base excited, you're going to lose whatever momentum you had or have. Five Nights at Freddy's, there's a huge fan base for that IP. And so they were going to make a beeline to the cinemas to watch that project or watching on Peacock. It was on this, you know, it was released on the same day on Peacock as it was in the theater. So they made a beeline there to watch that project because they were so excited about that IP. They love that IP. They want to support that IP. The Marvels, for a variety of different reasons, doesn't have that luxury anymore. Back in the day, people would go and watch the Marvel films because they had to watch those films. And they were so excited about anything related to their comic book heroes being released. So they were going to go there and watch that project or support that project via whatever medium it was being released in. That's not the case anymore. And the last point about superhero fatigue, comparing it to the Westerns, I think that is one of the most ridiculous comparisons it's literally an apples to oranges comparison because if you look at the westerns the westerns have a very specific landscape a very specific period of time they focus on and that's pretty much it unless unless and that's even going to an extreme you do something like wild wild west where you have sci-fi elements brought into the mix or you know, maybe you bring in some supernatural elements uh, like The Sixth Gun by Cullen Bunn, something like that, okay? But you are pretty much stuck with cowboys, the Old West, horses, 
these vistas in the Midwest, pretty much that. That's all you've got, okay? Superhero Fair, as has been mentioned many times by Kevin Feige, allows you to play in a lot of different realms. With Doctor Strange, you've got magic. With Shang-Chi, you have martial arts fair. With Captain America, Winter Soldier, you've got espionage. With the Avengers, you've got the big blockbuster mashups. Okay? With Werewolf by Night, you've got horror to some degree. With Daredevil, you've got the gritty, uh, I guess you could say, street-level fare that really is not tied to superpowers. It's more about vigilante storytelling. Think uh, Liam Neeson or something like that, <laughs> or someone like that. Those, when I say Liam Neeson, something like that, his films are pretty much all the same, these that he's released over the last couple of years. It's this lone Avenger, <clears throat> this lone Avenger fighting against the mob or these criminals who have done X, Y, and Z to his loved ones. So you can see that each of those is actually analogous to a Western. Because if you talk about Doctor Strange, that, if you want to say Doctor Strange is a category, but if you talk about Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness, magic is a category of storytelling, if you will. Fantasy fair. You talk about Guardians of the Galaxy, that's another one we didn't talk about. That's science fiction, okay? There's a whole universe, pardon the pun, of storytelling that's available to you when you're talking about science fiction. Shang-Chi, that's martial arts fair. You're talking about Wushu. You're talking about Bruce Lee fair. You're talking about potentially even samurai fair from back in the day. So to say that this is analogous to the Westerns is completely off the mark because the superhero fair actually includes all of these categories. As a matter of fact, there have been comic books that are Western comic books. So, and there were superhero elements in those as well. If you read any of the DC and Marvel fair from back in the day, you'll see that. So to say that this is like that, no, it's not that. Because that means that basically people are tired of storytelling in general. <laughs> That's what I would argue. Because the comic book, the superhero industry as a whole embraces all of these subcategories. So that does not fly here. That doesn't work. So let's just push that argument aside. Why did the Marvels do as poorly as it did? Now I'm going to talk, my, talk about my experience and what I thought about the film. And then I'm going to talk about, again, something that James and I have been talking about for quite some time, but I think is very, very, very important when it comes to storytelling in general, regardless of the type of story you're telling. I stand by this and I will continue to stand by this. The reason the Lord of the Rings films did so well critically and commercially <clears throat> is because they had compelling stories and people were able to relate to hobbits, little, little people basically, in a fantasy milieu because of the trials and tribulations they were forced to overcome and the universal themes that they could relate to, all packaged in, in, a, in a dynamic, logical progression from A to B to C 
leading to Z. The writing was top-notch. Writing was top-notch. The Marvels, you look at the cast, you look at the film as a whole. Brie Larson, wonderful actress. Oscar winner. You've got Iman Vellani. By most accounts, she's got that X factor, that charisma that she brings to the role that make her or makes her compelling, makes you want to watch her because you believe that she actually is a fangirl experiencing the dream of her lifetime and that is being part of the superhero landscape. Tiana Paris, I thought she was very solid in WandaVision. And then you add Samuel Jackson to the mix and you've got a lot of nice pieces to play with. But I think the story itself, the Marvel story itself, and we're going to get into some spoilers here as well, it's very pedestrian. Okay, you've got these three compelling characters or potentially compelling compelling characters who actually have charisma. When they're on the screen together, you feel that they do relate to one another. But the writing is not up to pace because the moments that they are together do work and probably would have worked even more strongly had they gone with the longer runtime because we only have 90 minutes so they don't really get to spend time with each other. There are no dramatic pauses or moments of reflection. For example, if you have a Miss Marvel character who idolizes Captain Marvel, it would have been nice to have her, and I'm talking about Ms. Captain Marvel, explaining to Miss Marvel what it means to be a hero. Because there's a scene in this movie, and again, we'll get into some spoilers, where there's a loss of life and that dramatically impacts Miss Marvel because she's not seen it before. She loves the, the glamour of the superhero world, but she has not seen the gritty reality that comes with being a hero, regardless of whether you're a superhero or not. And it would have been nice, for example, to have a couple moments where Captain Marvel takes her aside and says, listen, other than just one line, explaining what that means, that with great power does come great responsibility and loss as well. Those kind of moments are absent from this film. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about storytelling. When you look at the Lord of the Rings films, whether it's The Hobbits, whether it's Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn, whether it's even some of the side characters, quote-unquote, like Arwen, who's introduced in the second film, we get moments with them which reveal their inner turmoils that also reveal their inner struggles, their trepidations, their concerns, what they're grappling with. And we find those relatable to what we deal with on a human level, on an earthbound level, And that makes for a compelling character and a compelling ride that they want us to accompany them on, okay? But when you just go from A to B to C to D and there's no time to even breathe, just a throwaway line here or there, that's not going to work, okay? So you've got that problem in this film. Not enough character development with the three lead characters. That's number one. Number two There's a been there, done there feel to the action sequences, which I think, again, sometimes it's uh, believed that the faster you do things, uh, 
George Lucas, people always joke about that. Faster, faster, faster line. You know, he wanted things to have a little bit more energy. Sometimes just going faster, even if it seems like that's going to make things more exciting, just the speed of it, doesn't necessarily work. Because what happens in this film is that the three lead characters are connected. And it's not really, con you know, I mean, it is explained through superhero logic, if you will, that that their powers have become connected, that every time they use their power simultaneously, they switch places. Okay, so if Captain Marvel is using her powers and Miss Marvel is using her powers and they are on different parts of the world, say Captain Marvel is in Australia and Miss Marvel is in New Jersey and they use their powers simultaneously, Captain Marvel will be transported to New Jersey and Miss Marvel will be transported to Australia, okay? And I think that that's an interesting dynamic. But what you need to do is you need to build up the explanation of that. Not just why it happened, but clever ways for it to be manifested. There's nothing clever about the way they utilize or use any of the elements related to that dynamic at all in this film. It's just quick switches back and forth, back and forth, okay? So there's that there. Okay. Then the villain, I think, is really, if I had to say, the prime example of where this story fails. And it's not a criticism of the actress because it's all about what you have to work with. Zoe Ashton is literally the epitome of the mustache twirling supervillain who just wants destruction and revenge. That's it. And it's this over-the-top performance where there's no nuance to her loss. And to be honest with you, even the explanations for why she's doing certain things are not clear from a superhero fan perspective. I'm still confused by some of the things that happen because it seems that certain action set pieces happen just so we can have an action set piece, okay? And that characters can be moved from one point on the board to another point on the board. And that's what happens to one of the leads here. I won't spoil that. But it actually has ramifications in the MCU moving ahead. But to get to that point, they move the character from one place to another. And they have an action sequence that's created or a crisis that's created. So that person or that character is moved to that place. But it doesn't make any sense. I've always submitted that when you watch a film with an outlandish premise or any premise, you cannot break the rules that are established. First of all, you have to have rules and then you can't break those rules, okay? So if you're watching a film about vampires, there are certain ways that you can impact a vampire. Okay, that's it. And that's understood going into the film. So you accept what happens. And then the clever way of presenting how the lead characters use or do not use those techniques or methods, that's what makes for smart writing and compelling storytelling. And what we've seen with Marvel, I think, for the longest time is that they have relied too much on the love of the franchise and the paint-by-numbers approach to just getting from A to B to C to Z. They're not really interested in telling a compelling story and logically getting you invested into whatever's happening, not just from a character perspective, 
but also from an ashen perspective. And that has led to pedestrian fear. And on top of all that, you're injecting real world, quote unquote, politics or socioeconomic issues that are very contemporary into the mix. You're shoehorning those in. That never works. People are looking for escapism. They are not looking for, at least with these types of projects, commentaries or lessons on life. If you look at what Stanley did with, and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, you have to give them credit as well. But if you look at the characters they introduced to us, what was so brilliant about those characters is that we were relating to those characters because we understood these archetypal universal elements of the human experience they were grappling with. Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. There's a loss that happens that forces him to understand that in the most personal and painful of fashions. Tony Stark, at least in the comics, and to some degree actually in the films, a very rich, selfish human being who doesn't realize the pain and the destruction he's causing through his technology and his weapons, and so is trying to make amends, and on top of all that, grappling with a disease, an addiction, alcoholism. Okay, we don't see this in the films, but that was the driving thrust of the Tony Stark character in the comics. You've got uh, Bruce Banner having to overcome a painful childhood, rage, just in general, controlling his rage, okay? You start with those universal themes, then you riff off of those themes. But if you inject specific reasons for certain things, so, so for example, you say, okay, rather than, we're rather than us focusing on Bruce Banner and dealing with rage and this notion of dealing with rage, we're going to give you a specific contemporary reason for why that person is angry and that's why uh, this film has been made or what that's the message we're trying to deliver, it turns people off. We are, and I'm talking about the American spirit and the American people, we are a people that does not like things forced down our throats, whether it's through propaganda, whether it's through forced messaging, what have you. We like to make decisions on our own. I was just thinking about this the other day. Just look at the American car industry in relation to or in comparison to Europe when it comes to travel locally. The railway system in Europe has been embraced for the longest time and even in Japan to a huge extent because, and I don't want to say that's uh, you know completely the case because that might be too much of a blanket statement, but the American ethos has been built on individuality, individual rights, egocentricity to some degree. And so we like to have control. We like to have autonomy. So we want to drive where we want to drive. We don't want to get on a train and go to a particular location because there's a lack of control, an absence of control there. And so when it comes to films like these films, the Marvel films or any films where there's a message forced into it, we feel like we've lost control, that someone is taking control away from us to make decisions about X, Y, and Z, and that never works. And when you put into superhero fare, uh, it's a it's a it's a lose 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 all the way around. So there's some of that in there now. Some might argue that you know diversity, and I'm a minority myself. So they say diversity is a good thing. We need more and more and more. Yes, it can and should be in the mix. 
but it cannot be forced. So for example, you make a film like Shang-Chi that taps into or pulls inspiration from different parts of the world that have compelling stories that are not necessarily European-based or American-based or inspired. That's interesting. There's a reason why manga and anime are doing so well, by the way. Uh, Just a note to those in the film industry who may be listening in. They work because they pull from what they know and what they're familiar with, but they also tell universal stories. They're not trying to promote an ideology or lifestyle or what have you. Universal stories when it comes to fantasy and genre fare in general work best because archetypal stories are stories that are supposed to plant the seeds of an idea, but they're supposed to give you a respite from the trials and tribulations of life, the challenges of life. We're trying to get a few moments with, uh, without this, this madness of life that we have to deal with on a day-by-day basis or a consistent basis. And so that's a big problem with these films. So I think what you're seeing with the Marvel films is that once they reached a certain level of success, they thought that they could just, you know, go by the numbers. It didn't matter what the story really was about as far as uh, not just the plot, but the action sequences that people were already dialed in, invested in this. We can just give them more and more and more and they'll just keep coming. That's number one. The messaging in the films has been when I want to say messaging, but the intent perhaps behind some of the projects has been suspect. And you have to read the room as well. Whether that's the case or not, the reality of the situation is if that's the perception, you got to watch it. If you look at Christopher Nolan's films, perfect example, I don't know where he stands on anything. I just know that he's trying to tell a compelling story. So if you go in with that approach, not just with the way you make films, but also your your branding and merchandising, you're going to bring people in. So that's another element. And then now, as the article alludes to, there's a perception that this is not going to be as strong as what was created before. So all of those things have come into the mix here. Um, I have heard rumors that, you know, there were some possible boycotts of the film, boycotting of Disney that may have come into the mix as well. I don't know if that hurt the numbers or not. But nonetheless, the reality of the situation is this. This film is a colossal failure. Now, it may do well later on, but I would highly, highly encourage Marvel, because I experienced it myself. I didn't think that this was a great film, but I thought that there were some interesting ideas. The characters could have been compelling. Even the story itself had potential. Those things could have worked. Even the two crazy sequences involving cats, flurkins, and a planet where people sing to communicate, I think those things were okay. I really do think those were okay. Some people didn't like them, but I thought they were okay. Um, would have liked to actually have spent even more time in some ways or at least built that up in different ways. Um, Maybe the execution was somewhat lacking, but the point is that the potential is still there. In my opinion, in a nutshell, the superhero genre is not dead. The way these films are being made and distributed, that is dead. And we'll talk more about this next week. So it doesn't surprise me that this is a $47 million opening weekend for this film. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be another $100 million opening weekend in the future if Marvel recognizes that it's story, 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 and characters first, universal themes. Focus on that. You're listening to Fictional Frontiers. We'll catch you next week.